been awesome to be able to be on vacation and get away for a few weeks. And I hope all of you have been able to enjoy kind of the summer of freedom that's been given to us by God. And one of the great things has been able to go from Corona to all kinds of locations. We got to go up the coast and we saw the beach and we got to go to a mountain and, and the cabins up there. And we, my kids got to go off to their, their camps and cool things like that. What I love about it is it just reminds me of how much I just adore Corona, that you can go pretty much anywhere within 45 minutes. And I just was enjoying my vacation thinking, why would I want to live anywhere else? And of course, then I hear in my mind what everybody's thinking, because my house is worth so much, right? I get it. I get it. There's all kinds of reasons why we would want to be somewhere else, why we would want something else and more. And uh, that discontent dwells in my heart, too. I'm, I'm honestly the kind of person who finds myself strangely discontented. I was literally up at Lake Gregory uh, on a kayak with my wife and just enjoying the beauty and the serenity of the hills and that lake and, and seeing the, the wonder of all the trees lining and the clouds moving past and in the distance, the other hills rolling away. And I was thinking to myself, man, I would love to be at a beach house too. What? Like, why in the world do I want uh, to be at a beach house when I'm enjoying this lake? And that's the soul. That's my soul. It's discontented. And, and all of us suffer with discontent at some level. Maybe it's with power. And you're like, man, if I just had that job, that guy's job, if I just could make that decision, I would make the best decision. Maybe it's with stuff. If I just had a little bit more money. I would be, I would be healthy and it would have some stuff. And what's funny is that money and power are the things we're most discontent with, but they're often put together an equation that I think holds the American mind. Um, it's this simple equation of money plus power equals corruption, right? Power and money go together and man, that's corrupt, man. That guy's got all the power. He's got all the money. That's, that guy's corrupt. And there's a sense in that. But I really think if we added one more variable, it would help. It works more like this, right? Power plus money plus another's hands, so it's in somebody else's hands. No, that's corruption. Everybody else has all the money. That guy has all the money. That guy has all the power. But And we're thinking to ourselves, power plus money in my hands, well, that's going to be transformation. That's going to be change. And that's the deceit of our culture, right? Everybody wants the money. Everybody wants the power because they'll make a difference. They'll make the change. And everybody else is going, you're getting corrupted. And that's the joke because absolute power corrupts absolutely. Or money's the root of all evil. We hear these things all the time. And yet, some of it's true. Uh, we've looked at power through the years, and right now our culture seems to be, think that power is fine. We can have power and we're good. And Look, God has all the power, and He isn't corrupt. So that's awesome. The question is, how do we have this thing, money, not corrupt the church? How do we have this thing, money, not corrupt our hearts? How do we illustrate the gospel and still allow money to be in this equation? Because it could lead to transformation and change, but it's got to be the right equation. I want, I want you to consider with me today, maybe there is an equation that God has given us with money in it that could really illustrate the gospel. Maybe there's a way that we could handle money. Maybe there's a way that money could be thought about that doesn't lead to corruption and destruction. And I think we can find that. If you, if you got your Bible, I want to invite you to join me into 1 Timothy chapter 6. We've been going through this book. We've been examining what um, Paul has to say to his protege Timothy in this leadership book. And we've been looking at the fact that as leader goes, so goes the church. And, and so we're looking at how leadership is and ultimately how we should illustrate the gospel. 
And as we focus in today in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to see how money and the gospel can actually go together in a very powerful equation. But here's the equation that we have here needs to begin with godliness. And so if we were to look at our equation and you're writing it down, it's just simply this. Godliness plus something else is going to bring about something. And what I want to do is this equation, when it comes to seeing money being transformed and money being okay in the church, it starts with this concept of godliness. That's what this entire series really has been about. Illustrating the gospel is the concept of godliness. We believe in a gospel and we show it off. And so week one, we talked about being those people who are inspired by the gospel to live that out. Uh, Miles was awesome. He, trained, he taught, told us to train in that gospel. So it's a part of us. We have to have a montage of, of training and living out godliness. And Stephen said it has to be aimed at the family of God and helping those who really need aid and help those who don't have a family to have a family. And last week, we also saw that it needs to be aimed at our authorities so that we treat one another rightly in godliness, whether they're over us in the church or our bosses or whatever it may be. Now, now, this is important because as Paul's driving forward, he comes to this point where he's still talking about leadership. And he's saying, guys, here's the thing. Leadership is important, right? Because, again, as the leaders go, so goes the church. And bad leadership can cause corruption. Bad leadership can destroy. And so ungodliness that comes from ungodly leaders destroys all the gospel illustrations. If godliness is the first part of the equation, ungodliness is what's going to allow money to really corrupt some things. And, and we see this. In fact, Paul's going to define and identify ungodliness for us as we start off here in chapter 6. If you've got it, let's look down, starting in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and teaching that accords with, there's our word, godliness, he is puffed up with conceit, and understands nothing. I love that. It's almost, Paul, tell me how you really feel about these guys. <laughs> you know, <it's laughs> puffed up. You're conceited. They don't get anything. It's like, awesome. But what he's saying here is pretty powerful. He says, look, we're not going to be godly if we're opposing the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and his teaching. If we are going to be conceited and puffed up, as he calls it, it means that we're leaning on our own understanding our own answers, our own thinking, as opposed to Jesus' teachings in the gospel. And if we understand that godliness is just illustrating the gospel with our lives, believing this gospel and having it come through us, then when we deny the gospel, it's going to destroy the gospel illustration. Money will easily corrupt us because we need that first point. We need godliness, and that means we need to trust the words of Jesus. Now, nobody would just push Jesus' words off and go with their own thoughts, right? I would. I do all the time. We all do. And there are plenty of teachers in this world ready to offer you their man-made thinking and decisions to you to lead you astray away from the gospel. They're on podcasts. They're on news broadcasts. They're on television shows. They're on radio. They're, they're your uncles and aunts. They're your own mind and your own heart. We have to be careful where our ideas come from. We need to be careful and ask ourselves, hey, you know, like, where did I get this idea? Is this really aligning with the teachings of Jesus? Because I don't want to be puffed up and conceited like these false teachers were leading other people to do. Because what happens is it destroys the gospel illustration. And we're not going to be godly because we're going to wind up doing something else. We're going to get fixated on something. You see, these teachers at the time, they had an unhealthy craving. 
He says he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Now, we don't debate over words anymore. Now, have you been in the church lately? Have you noticed that we love to get into controversy and quarrels? Calvinism, Arminianism, creation and evolution. We've loved to, you know, this end time scheme and that. And we have de total denominations created because of divisions over words like baptism. Controversies in the church have created brand new entire denominations. Guys, we can have a tendency to have an unhealthy craving about controversy and want to fight about words. And the church isn't alone. This is a human problem. Look at the world right now. We've got racism and woke. We've got, you know, rioters and protesters. We've got, you, you name it, what word will you want to insert that everybody's fighting over? And a lot of these are creeping into the church. Because here's the thing. The news and the world and everybody who's got an unhealthy craving for controversy will seek it out. And let's just put it this way. Controversy and quarrels sell. They sell, man. You want to watch a news broadcast grow, they're going to give you controversies. They're going to give you debates over words because controversies and quarrels about words sell. They sell books. They sell shows. They sell ideas. They sell podcasts. It sells. And it's part of the money-desiring agency of our world. And so when we see that we're getting caught in and we're getting tr troubled and tripped up by these various controversies, I just want you to be aware if that's, for you, if that's you. Are you being led astray by people who have these cravings for controversies, quarrels about words, instead of us gathering together and having communication, instead of us talking and listening and trying to understand, regardless of what words we're using, trying to gather the meaning and the struggle and the pain to get to the gospel solution? You see, the problem with the controversy selling is that it costs something, and what it costs is the church. It costs the unity in the church. Notice how it continues on here. We pick it up and he says, this unhealthy controversy and quarreling about words produces something. It produces envy, produces dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And so what happens is the truth is removed from us and we fall into our worst state in which we're competing and wanting to be right. And man, it brings dissension. We're envious of other people. We start suspecting, oh, you, you, you've gone to the wrong side. You've become, you've become a, a radical. You've become a, a this, a that, right? And, uh, you insert your own words. Because here's the problem. When we get into these evil suspicions, it's dissolving the church. It's dividing the church. And the church is the gospel illustrated. But if there's no church, there's no gospel illustrated. And so we need to be careful in our equation with money. In our equation, godliness comes first. That's what this whole series has been about. And we can't allow these controversies and other things to dissolve the godliness and unity of the church. Because all this stuff is about one thing. They think that godliness is a means of gain. About money. And money, money, money. Controversy sells. Division sells. If I can get you on my side, you'll buy my t-shirts, you'll buy my logo, you'll sing my chants, you'll get with me, and boom, we are a sports team in a political field. We are a sports team in a church world, right? Here at Olive Branch, I want you to wear Olive Branch gear and stuff like that and, and oppose churches. They're not our enemies. Other churches are our brothers and sisters in arms against the spiritual forces of this world to bring people to Jesus. We need to unite and seek out 
the sake of other people who are going to hell, and we need to bring them in. That's the goal. It's about the gospel, not a means of gain. And yet, man, controversy sells. These things sell. Ungodliness sells. It'll get you a lot of money. And yet, they think they're promoting a godliness. And, and so there's a tension here. And we see this problem. We've seen it in televangelists. We see it in celebrity pastors who told you, give in this money and I'll get you 10 times back. And the whole world now looks at the church and says, they're a bunch of greedy people. And what happens is the gospel falters and falls because they think we're greedy. And so the world looks at us as greedy and church congregant members begin to distrust even their leadership. And we become greedy and we don't give and we don't provide and we don't share because it's ours. About gain. And so there has to be more even than godliness. There has to be more in this equation than just being godly. Because there, there is, we have to have godliness, but Paul says there's something else that we have to have. And that second part in the equation, we must add contentment. See, it's godliness plus contentment that's going to bring about this equation, this transformation of money in the church and in our world so that it no longer corrupts. So godliness is our ability to serve, care, and live out the gospel. Contentment is our relationship with what we have. And let's just be honest, our culture is a culture of discontentment. You have, um, on average, every day see about 5,000 ads. It's probably higher if you're on the internet because ads are on every page. But you see well over 5,000 ads or hear them or see them on television or on YouTube or you name it, within a day, they say. That's a lot of advertising. You say, ah, it doesn't really affect me. Really, because the average debt in the United States on a credit card is $6,270. That's average. People owe more than they have for things they don't have the ability to own. I think advertising's working. I find discontent in my heart. I think we find discontentment everywhere. And so Paul says, well, it's not just enough to be godly. You need to have a contentment. And this is how he puts it as we continue on in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Not just godliness. He says, you can't assume godliness is great gain. No, godliness with contentment is of great gain. And I believe he means spiritual gain. For we cannot... Um, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And here's this thing. He's saying, guys, we as Christians, you want to see an equation that changes the way money is used, the way money changes the world, then you need to be godly, live out the gospel, let it be illustrated through you with a contentment. Now, contentment is a heart condition. It's not about what you have or don't have. I have met a lot of rich people in my life, and I've met plenty who are discontent. Man, you'd think the rich people of our world would be content, that they have enough. They've got enough. They don't need any more. They've got all the money they want. They've got all the things that they want. They can buy anything they want. No, but they are. They are very discontent. Wondering another dollar. Wanting to make sure they're, they're not going to lose it all. You name it. There's a discontentment there. But I've met some really discontent poor people. Poor people who are, who, are, who are looking at others envious and they're like, I just had more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And what you will see is that contentment knows no boundaries. It needs to be found in the hearts of the rich. It needs to be found in the hearts of the poor. It needs to be found in the hearts of the middle class, you name it. I don't care how you want to define it. Everyone, if they would find a content heart with godliness, would see money transformed. 
And so let me, let me start here because I kind of consider myself a content guy in some ways. You know, I'm the kind of guy who goes into a, a Target or something and I'll fiddle around. I'll see like, oh, this game looks really cool. Maybe my kids would enjoy it. That'd be fun. And I'll walk around with it and I'll get to the front of the line and then I'll just be like, nah, I don't really want to buy that. And I'll walk away and go put it back. Now, obviously, I may think I'm content, but Paul's going to challenge me, and he really has. And he's shown me my discontent is pretty deep. And maybe he's going to show you the same. So I invite you to kind of check out the rest of this text and be challenged, because he starts with this. He says, look, we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. He says, if you really want to know if you're content, do you believe you can hold on to it? Are you afraid of losing your stuff? That, that's a great test for discontentment. Are you afraid that it, you could lose what you have? Because what you have, you don't own. He's basically saying, you are just a steward. You hold on to it for a time, and then it's going to go. You hold on to it for a little while, and then you'll die, and you won't have it with you. In fact, you take less with you. You don't even take your body with you in, into heaven until the resurrection. I mean, you come in with the body, right? You leave without. You leave with less than you came in with. And yet we sit here and we hold on and we have storage units filled with stuff because we got to hold on to it. And hey, look, if you struggle with hoarding, that is a real thing. You need to get some counseling. You need to get some help. And if you struggle releasing things, then, then look into that. Examine. Get under the hood a little bit. Like, I really challenged myself. And I'm like, I realized I, I love books. That's my thing, man. I'm always discontent about, oh, maybe that volume and that volume. And it really exposed it to me when I thought about, the fact that I'll let people borrow a book. And my first thought is, I better not lose this book. So if all of you have my books out there, I want to, I'm just kidding, right? That, that's the challenge in my own heart. And that may seem silly, and I hope it should seem silly, but that's how dumb even my discontent can get over books. Really? And, and we can be discontent about so many things. And so I want to challenge us, examine, is there a discontent? Are we afraid to lose our stuff? Because it's not our stuff, it's Christ's stuff. He's letting us use it for some time. He's letting us hold on to it for some time. And then Paul really lays down the boom. He says, you really want to know if you're discontent? Well, if you got food and clothing, with these, you're going to be content. What? Just food and clothing? So like, Paul, are you advocating homelessness here? Like, we should be content if we don't have somewhere to live? And so I want to pause here for a minute. These are categorical statements. If we have food or supply, that's another way of translating that word. And if we have clothing or shelter, that which is over you. In fact, if you're reading your NIV, you're like, no, it says food and shelter. It's advocating nudism. No, it's not. It's that, that's not the point. The point is that we have our basic needs met. If, do you have your basic needs met? Then you should be content. Are you worried about putting some clothes on? Are you worried that you're not going to go to bed tonight in a home? Are you worried you're not going to be able to eat? That's a different subject. He's saying, if you don't have those issues, you should be content. Now, that's a challenge. Health isn't in there. Entertainment's not in there. Lots of things are not in here, but when it comes to the things and the possessions of this world, he says, your basic needs are met. This reminds me of like going backpacking. If you've ever gone backpacking, uh, it is a tough chore to figure out what you need and what you don't. I, I can think of it many times, a few times I've been backpacking, you put the backpack out there and then you're like, okay, I, I need the tent, check. I need something for the mat on the ground because the, the ground will pull the body heat out of me. So, and then I'll need to make sure that mat's there and I may 
I got something to sleep in because it gets cold and I want to freeze. Okay, so how many clothes do I need? Do I need one set and they get really dirty? Do I need another set? Am I going to wash these clothes? What am I going to wash them in? Do I need soap? Do I not need soap? How about... And you go through this whole thing of simplifying down to the bare essentials of what you need and then you always overpack. I always overpack because I think I need more than I do. I don't ever use all the things that I bring with me. And Paul is just like, hey, be content with just the basics that they're met. Now, I want to explain the basics change from culture to culture, like how Dave Ramsey deals with the basics. He says, guys, there are four walls that you need to deal with. Food, shelter, utilities, and transportation. You're like, how does that get in here? Well, I want you to think about it. He says, everybody's got clothes. That's good. But say you are a homeless person and you're always like, why are those people so grungy looking? Where are they supposed to wash their clothes? They may have clothes, but they can't just go down to the downstairs and wash their clothes. They can't go to the river because of our laws and, and wash their clothes. They, they have to go to a laundromat, maybe get some money or something, but you only have clean clothes when you wash your clothes and your clothes last longer the longer you keep them clean, right? So clothing is far more than just clothing. Shelter is far more than shelter. You got to be able to keep that shelter right and upright. You got to be able to keep it keeping you safe and keeping you warm in the right times. And so, yeah, there's fire hearths and different things that we've seen in different homes and out throughout the world. And, and the point is that in our world, it's utilities. Try living without water and power for a week and see how that goes in your home. It doesn't go well. It's scary. We need power. We need water and you need communication. And in our world, communication has become an essential to the point that you, we don't have communication when your car breaks down, you're expected to have a cell phone. There's no call boxes anymore, things like that. And so we realize, hey, there is a sense of these four walls being very, very important. And those can get complicated. And I want to encourage you and consider that if you had this stuff met, if you had shelter, you had power, you had water, you had communication, that you had transportation. I'm not even talking about a car, but you could get somewhere on a bus or on a bike. If you had what you needed, would you really be content? That's the challenge. Because everything else above that would be blessing. Blessing from godliness or blessing from just God caring about us. And that is amazing. You want great entertainment? You know how the world entertained themselves? With relationships. Telling stories. Engaging and hearing about each other. Spending time with each other, playing simple games, those kinds of things. That was the world the, before we had our TVs and all these other things. Guys, we can have a great, robust life and be content with very little things. And so I want to challenge you. I want, you to, I want to challenge you to consider going simpler. I want to challenge you to consider looking at your possessions and saying, you know, we can stop and see where your contentment factor is and bring it to the Lord and begin to work in your prayer life and your, in your time with God about where he's calling you to contentment. I know that's what I'm going to do. I just invite you to that practice to consider that. And I get it. Some of us are like, how in the world would we be content with so little? That seems so difficult. And let me just give you a picture. I, I am somebody who does not do well on long plane flights. I get on a plane flight. I'm, I'm uncomfortable in the way that I position. I can't fall asleep. Oftentimes I get stuffed up. It is a weird thing for me. And I am, in a sense, needing contentment. And I'll find it. I'll find it while I'm sitting there talking with someone, or I'll find it by reading a book, or I'll find it by trying to take a nap. I'm uncomfortable. I don't like it. But I also know it's temporary. 
That temporary discomfort of trying to be content on the plane because I can't have everything else is the same idea that we have. We're passing through this world. We brought nothing in. We're taking nothing out. You're on the plane flight on your way to eternity. What we want to do is bring as many people on the plane. And guess what? If that means I got to be a little uncomfortable and content with a few things so that more people can get on, let's do it. Let's do it because it's that godliness plus that contentment that's going to change and transform that powerful money to a gospel-oriented thing. Now, the other reason why we need to be content is because discontent destroys the gospel inside of us. And that's where Paul's going to warn us next. He's like, look, be content because guess what? It's a danger zone and you need the map out if you're not careful. And so he goes on. He says, look, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Notice these words, ruin, destruction. For by the love of money, or the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. There's, there's the quote. It's the love of money. Not money is the root of all evil. The love of money, greed, is the root of all kinds of evil, not all evil. And it is through this craving, this love of money, this desire to be rich, this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And here's the problem. We can find ourselves into difficult situations where our entire faith is a shipwreck because you are running after dough. You're running after cash. See, when we desire to be rich, he tells us there's all kinds of temptations and snares and, and things in the way. This is coveting, right? It's against the 10th commandment to want what somebody else has. And yet what we see is it leads to all kinds of odd desires and odd behaviors that destroy senseless and harmful desires and that plunge us into ruin and destruction. For example, consumerism. Consumerism, having to have more and buying more. And I'm just going to tell you, if you think capitalism is consumerism and so you like socialism better, um, that's not the Christian definition. Consumerism is wrong. Just as stealing is wrong, but we'll get to stealing in a minute. See, the harmful desires that come up from coveting create a harmful consumeristic mentality. I gotta have more and buy more and buy more and buy more and buy more. I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. That is not gonna help us say no to ourselves in order to reach people for Jesus or to wait for God to answer our prayers. And instant gratification then comes trickling in. And that instant gratification makes us impatient with God and His timing. And it actually makes us distant from God because we think He should act now. And we become demanding like God, like little children more like uh, of God. Demanding of God like little children. Now, we can end up for a desire for safety. i got to have more. i got to keep it. And I can't lose it. And so we can't spend it. We can't use it. No, no, no. That destroys the ability to use the finances for the gospel. Destroys the ability to give it to someone in need. Maybe it's financial hoarding. And Jesus told the parable to the rich man who made even more money. I'm going to put more barns. He's like, no, tonight you're leaving this earth. And all that's wasted. Right? And so we, we may play safety, financial hoarding. We may play the keep up with the Joneses game. Where you're like, oh, they got that. We got to get that. They got that. We got to get that. And you play status symbol. But guess what? You're going to be owned by debt and you're going to become a slave to someone else. And you're not going to be able to obey the Lord when it comes time that you have to. Or maybe you're going to wind up not able to pay your debts. And you know what? There are some of us out there who have made the conscious decision not to pay a, not to pay a bill because we thought, hey, we can get around it. Can I just tell you as a Christian, that is a no-no. That's stealing. We need to pay our debts and pay our bills. 
I'm not talking about if you can't. I'm talking about if you make the calculated decision because, hey, everybody's getting away with it. That is stealing. That is not the case. It destroys the gospel. That's not godliness. And that's neither contentment. And that's you know, letting money corrupt you, right? And this desire to have more breeds this concept of self-sufficiency. And we become so sure that we can handle problems, we actually drop God in the back of our lives. Because our money and our credit cards, they'll handle it, right? We don't pray and we don't ask help. These are all kinds of things that will plunge you into destruction. In their world, it would plunge you into slavery, debtor's prison. It would put you under patronage in which a rich person paid for your life and you had to do whatever they asked you to do. In our world, it's very similar. We end up having to work for our jobs because if we lost a man, we'd lose everything. And so now, when we have people telling us how we should believe in our workplace, we are scared to lose our jobs instead of stand firm for Jesus. Are we slaves? The danger of wanting to be rich can lead to all kinds of snares and problems that cause us issues. In fact, that desire to be rich, that craving, as he says, produces all kinds of evils. And we can name them throughout history. We've got gambling, large amounts of people using other people's money where they know it's rigged and they're going to get the most. And so they're literally using pyramid schemes and gambling and these kinds of extortion tactics, pornography, use of human beings to get money, slavery, drug dealing, drug running, prostitution, sex slave trades, blackmail, stealing, uh, preying on people's struggles, man. I mean, it's horrible when you see certain groups that used to be services to those who are hurting now raking in the dough. Funeral homes can be super expensive because what are they going to do? The, the government has set all these rules, and now it's all super expensive. We have in vitro fertilization, people being forced and pressured from their pain to pay tons of money, to have lots of embryos that they're not going to use and need, and these little babies are going to die. We have situations where we got payday lending, moving into low-income territories, charging obscene amounts of interest just for a, to cash a check that they know they're not going to be able to pay back just to put them in debt. Man, we, we have the abortion industry. We have all kinds of plastic surgery industries that have risen up to jump on the transgender moment, to, to jump on these poor people who are hurting to tell them, no, no, immediately, you need to get surgeries, you need to have hormones. Why? Because they want to get rich. They want to have money. There's an entire factory of destruction and evils that are behind so much money making. Guys, that's not the Christian vision of the economy. When you have godliness, you're not going to involve yourself in any of these things. And if you are, let me tell you, as a Christian, get out now. Jesus put it this way. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? What are you gaining if you're going to end, get into a world of evil to gain a lot of money? Get out of those industries. If you know those industries are corrupted and destroying some of them, if you can be in them, like I'd say like in vitro or in certain cases with, um, with lending and stuff, if you can do it rightly and care for people and do it in a Christian manner, awesome, meet the need. But don't allow the service to be corrupted. Let's meet the needs in the funeral industry. Let's do that. But some of these, they're just a no-go for Christians. You're done. You're out. Get away as fast as you can. And instead, let's take on the mentality of the biblical economy godliness. Let's make good things. Let's produce good things. Let's serve in good ways. When we do godly things and we make good things and we serve in good ways and then we're content to have our needs met, 
There's an overflow of blessing, an overflow of financial ability so we can get out there and engage with people and giving and caring. And when we produce, we don't become consumers, we become producers and it's dignified. And you produce to help someone else to become a producer. And when all these people are producing, there will be grand, beautiful things because we're not doing evils, we're doing goods and services to care for each other. That's the vision behind this. When you put this equation together of godliness plus contentment, you get a transformation of economies. You get a transformation of our own lives. And it's no wonder then that Paul tells the leaders, guys, this needs to be you. In verse 11, he simply lays the boom down on good old, uh, good old Timothy. He says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and steadfastness, and gentleness. He's saying, you, don't, don't get caught up in greed. Don't get caught up in these things. Don't get caught up in controversies. Don't get caught up in ungodliness or, un, or discontent. No, seek to be godly or righteous because as the church goes, so goes the church. Amen. This is the case. Churches become super generous as leaders are generous. We become capable of seeing great things, and the world looks differently at the church. I'll give you an example is Rick Warren. Rick Warren, you know him because he sold the number one nonfiction book ever called The Purpose Driven Life. And when he became a multimillionaire practically overnight because of the sales of that book, suddenly what, what Rick was looking at was as a pastor having a ton of money. And what he did was very fascinating. The first thing he did is he calculated all the money he had ever made from the church he had planted and gave it all back. Millions of dollars. Then he turned and he looked at his income and after investing what he needed to invest, he reversed tithe and gave 90% of what he made away and lived off of 10. That is the concept of being content. That is the concept of being godly in contentment. And so the challenge as, as we look at this is, is what do we do when we have this money? What do we do when we take it? Is it going to corrupt us? No. No, no, no. I pray that God makes you content first and godly and then gives you a ton and blesses you greatly. I hope that God overwhelms you with things so that you can fulfill this equation because godliness plus contentment equals this, money magnifying the gospel. You see, when money comes into your hand, it becomes a tool to illustrate the gospel, to make it bigger, to make it larger. And so he stops, Paul stops just before he ends the book and he says, oh, by the way, one more thing, verse 17. He says, as for the rich, in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So he turns to the rich and he says, rich people, listen to me. And so let me just tell you, if you're in the United States and you live in, the 20, in this 21st century, he's talking to you. We are the richest people that have ever lived in the history of the world and anywhere in the world right now. Yes, I know you're not as rich as somebody else, but... Let me just put it this way. In comparison to history and in comparison to the world around us, guys, we are really rich. And in this case, in the Roman time period, yeah, these guys didn't work. And so this would really apply very much to those of you who are retired and finding yourself with investments and you can live and not have to work. Um, but I believe that this is good for all of us. He says, those of you who are rich in this present age, those of us with wealth, those of us with money, where our needs are met, 
and now there's an overflow, right? He says, here's what we do. Number one, don't be haughty. Don't be arrogant. Don't trust it. Don't lean on it. He actually tells you it's uncertain. It's going to come. It's going to go. It's going to be there and then it's not. And so he says, don't let your riches go to your head. You're not more special for the kingdom because you got more money. You're blessed to be a blessing. And if you're smart with money, you're able to use it to make more to be a greater blessing. And that is a gift, a gift like preaching, a gift like teaching, a gift like service. It's the gift of giving. Use it. God's blessed you with it, enables you to do that. So have that godliness, plus that contentment, and watch what happens. And yeah, you can enjoy it. You can enjoy the giving and these other things. You can enjoy some of the finances, and you're able to see God do it. He didn't give it to you only to give it away. There is much that he's given you to enjoy. It's okay. However, we don't want to be discontent. And we don't want to lose our dependency on God. While you may not be dependent upon him for your finances, let me tell you this, you are dependent upon him to know where your finances should go. Let me say that again. You may not be dependent on God for your needs, but you're dependent upon him for the direction. You should be in prayer all the time. God, where do you want these blessings to go? I'm not going to get to keep them. Where do you want them to go? What do you want to do with them? Because money will leave. But it's a matter of you directing it where God wants you to put it. And that's what happens. The gospel begins to be magnified because we begin to give. We begin to bless. We begin to lift people up where they don't have their needs met. We begin to walk into a world in which the gospel is taken. More people come along. No wonder Paul goes on to say this. The rich are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, storing up treasure for themselves and as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. He says basically use it for the kingdom of God. Use it to illustrate the gospel. Do good. Don't just buy good. Don't just give money to an institution. Step in and serve. Don't just give money to the church and go like, I'm good. No, use your gifts as well in other ways. Step in and teach. Step in and serve in other, in other manners. Do good works. Do good. And you can use your money then to be generous. And what generous means is you, it's no strings attached. You're, you're able to give it to somebody and they use it as they see fit. And I know that's hard because sometimes when you have a lot of money, you want to say how it should be used. But let's, let's be generous and give and share and use it because that's what Jesus did for us. He who has all the riches of the universe gives it to us when we're born, gives us stuff, gives us an ability to produce, gives us all these things. He says, hey, I want to give this to you so you can produce riches in in life and eternity. And that's what we do. We store up our treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not um, destroy. And there where our treasure is, there our heart is also. And maybe that means you need to challenge yourself in a certain way. Challenge yourself to limit the level of your life. You need to sit down and say, hey, we're good here. When we make this much and our needs are met, this is where we're going to stop. Everything above this, we're going to give away and use for the kingdom of God. Give it to the church. Give it to these these groups. We're going to help people out. 
when we hear a need of missionary, we're going we're gonna to support them. We are going to do everything we can because we want to be a people who are generous givers, who are, who are using this for the kingdom of God. You know, a lot that God wants to do through His church to illustrate the gospel, to meet the needs of the poor, to meet the needs of the broken, to meet the needs and see people come to faith in other countries and in our country is halted because we become consumers. And what I want to challenge is to be content. Because godliness plus contentment equals magnifying the gospel in the church. It enables the gospel to be seen and illustrated. And the church is the gospel illustrated. You as part of the church is the gospel illustrated. The family of God is the gospel illustrated because that was the way of Jesus. Jesus gave, right? We know this verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God the Father gives his son. Jesus gives his life that whoever would trust in the promise, trust in him, should not perish, will not go to hell, but will have eternal life. God gives to all of us. He wasn't corrupted by his possessions. He wasn't corrupted by his power. He said he turned it through godliness and contentment to save us. As he would say in another place, Jesus speaking here, even the Son of Man came not to be served, not to gain, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We illustrate the gospel when we take our possessions and our power and these things and we go godliness plus contentment and we use these possessions for the sake of the kingdom of God. We act like Christ and it becomes a brilliant illustration of the gospel. Because who does that in this world nowadays? Who does that with their finances in such a way that it's that dynamic? And the church would be a brilliant light in a very dark financial place. And I want to encourage you to consider one more thing if you're watching this today. To consider these words. To consider the God who is directing and can change money to a great transforming power by calling us to be content and calling us to be godly, to do good and serve others in love as Jesus did. I want you to consider that that God loved you. As I said, he loved you so much he would give his son. I don't know if you have children, but would you give your children on behalf of people who hated you so that they might avoid a destruction? You see, you are made for eternity and you thirst for heaven. That's what the discontent is. You long for heaven now. And yet what God is going to offer you is heaven ultimately, the truest one. And you don't pay for it. You don't earn it. Rather, you trust that Jesus on the cross did everything that you need. He was your ransom. He paid it so that you can trust in that promise and now know the God who has made you and loved you. When you find that, I believe that you will find both godliness and contentment, and it will begin to flourish in your life to something greater, a great gain of eternal life. But it begins today by you trusting his promise that Jesus took your sin and your guilt and your rebellion and all the things we've done in this world against other human beings and against him. And we turn to him who's loved us and gave us the promise that if you'll trust Jesus, he will take your sins on the cross, your guilt on the cross, and he will forgive you. And then he will call you to a new life. And I believe it's a life that can be filled with godliness and contentment as we run after him. If you would like that, and if you know you need that, and you're considering these words, I would offer you the chance right now and invite you to receive him in your life, to actually tell him that you trust him. Would you bow your head with me? Here, let's just pray. Father in heaven, you ask God, would you please 
Forgive me of my sins. I trust that Jesus Christ on the cross bore my guilt, bore my shame, and for all the things that I have done wrong in this world and against others. I trust that you gave your son so I would be forgiven. And I ask now that you would come into my life and make me content and guide me in godliness that I could be a change agent and show you off to others. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you pray that prayer, I want to welcome you to the family. This is an amazing thing that God has now given you eternal life by you trusting his promise. But this is the beginning point. Sure, you may have questions and you may have issues and you're like, I don't know what to do. Here's what we do. Just let us know that you made that decision. You can do so by, by uh, texting this information down here at the bottom of the screen. You can do so by letting somebody know right there on the live feed. You can do that by coming to church next Sunday and telling somebody, hey, I made this decision. What do I do? We'd love to get you connected in the next step. Answer questions that you have and bring you into the family so that you can be connected. We're just glad that you've been with us. And for all of us, I pray that you would find that godliness and contentment and that God would use the great riches that we have for the sake of his amazing kingdom, that more would find his forgiveness. God bless you guys, and I'll see you next week.